Hello, my name is Lucy Ripova and I'm the founder and host of Think with Lucy. I started this podcast to talk with female founders about their startup journey, challenges, successes, lessons learned, and their vision for the future. Why? Only 2% of venture capital funding goes to female founders, despite venture investment being at record highs. This data makes a strong case that gender bias persists among startup investors, and this needs to change. Research shows investing in female founders is extremely profitable. In fact, female founders outperform their male counterparts. So let's get the word out and eliminate the biases and prejudices that are limiting the ability to see the facts. Let's think. Today's episode is with Rakita Saragi. Rachita. Rachita. Yeah. Rachita. And Rebecca Thompson, co founders of Sisterhood, a program where all girls and gender expanding youth can design their place in the world and build confidence. So, we just talked about off the record about the definition of gender expanding youth. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about it more? Yeah. Of what, what do you mean by that? So, by gender expanding youth, we're really trying to encompass the fact that. We meet girls at a stage, or rather we meet young people at a stage where they're figuring out who they are, right? So they're already tackling things of like things to do with their identity, who you know, what it is that they identify with and and the aspects of them that they are discovering. So it's a way for us to make sure that sometimes, young people don't identify necessarily with the word girl and to be able to let them know that that you know sisterhood is a space where they can come in and still work on issues that predominantly may be affecting particular genders but that there is room for us to understand what that actually means to expand what gender means because it's yeah it's not one thing it's not one construct mm-hmm. so yeah so it's for all genders except Men. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so far, yes. <laughs> so far it is. Um, and the reason for that, we that was one of the first questions we got asked when we first started Sisterhood, which was like, oh, but you know, like this would be really helpful for boys and like young boys need it. And absolutely, right? Boys absolutely need support with confidence building and other aspects of understanding their way in the world. But we also really need to nurture and create a space where young girls and gender expanding youth can express themselves where they wouldn't express themselves if there was a boy in the room. And that's something that has come directly from the girls that we work with and the young people that we work with. Like they have told us this, but no, we want this to be our space. And I also don't think there are a lot of boys in design. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think design is specifically an area where a lot of girls like to go into right interesting yeah I mean this is that's so interesting that you say that because that's actually one of the main drivers why we started sisterhood so um when we were both at university studying graphic communication at central st martin's we were surrounded by women we from our tutors to our peers it was predominantly women who made up our cohort and many other cohorts throughout different subjects and categories at UAL and we were 70% women on our course and then when you and you studied what course uh we were graphic communication and then as we were about to graduate we were looking for you know those people that take 
take a chance on you for the first job or internship or whatever you're kind of going for. And that number was completely reversed in the industry. So there was this really sudden drop off of women and girls who had studied at higher education and they were just not in the, they had not pursued a career in the creative industry, even though they had so what were they doing? There was this drop off and this was something we started to look into. Uh, And it was actually our tutor, um, Rebecca Wright, who was, who was on our course. She had done research into it and found that, you know, although the industry had so many young people, men and women studying at higher education, it really comes, the industry itself really celebrates confidence, courage, charisma, that kind of like those, those qualities are the most pay risen, they're the most promoted, they're the most hired. And unfortunately, they just sit more uncomfortably in women than they do with men. And going into the industry, it does take that courage. It does take that undeniable belief in yourself that you can succeed in the industry. And then when you have that met with barriers with the industry, being the fact that it's there's a lot to do with having the right network or actually having the financial backing and the financial support to continue and pursue a career in the creative industry, it's a privilege to be able to take a, an internship that pays nothing or pays less than minimum wage. These barriers on top of the support of being like having your confidence and courage uh, nurtured from an early age is where we really saw this drop-off happening. And this wasn't just typical of the creative industry. This was across the board in many, many sectors. And we were like, we cannot be missing out on such crazy... We can't be missing out on creative talent full stop, but we really can't be missing out on creative talent when people have dedicated so much time to studying at higher education. And we just didn't want to be part of that statistic. So we set out to do something about it. You said that 70% of girls... 70% of students in your course were women. If the companies that are hiring people in in design are not hiring those women, who are they hiring? I mean, it's a good question because it's kind of like where where does it start? So where does the, the hiring start from when you graduate? Or does it start earlier? Does it start if you have that network before you even arrive at university? You're already in. You're already there's already a foot in the door. And if you don't, then you're really starting from scratch. You're starting from an unequal playing field. And I guess with with design agencies or independent studios, it's that network, you, working with people you know, it's, it's not uncommon in so many other industries. So if there's predominantly men already in the space, then typically when they're trying to bring up or coach or mentor people into their position so they can grow and develop and and move on that will be someone that might be from where they're from or look like them or typically would be another guy so it's a really interesting sort of it was a really interesting path of our research that led us to thinking how can we provide more equitable opportunities into the industry how can we make sure we just don't lose out on incredible female talent down to because of of confidence but also because of lack of lack of equity or financial barriers so we really started to see that we weren't just kind of 
building on confidence, we were really trying to affect an entire system and an entire pipeline of going from girlhood to womanhood and ensuring that if you want to be in the creative industry and you want to pursue a creative career, you absolutely can. So we don't miss out on those voices and perspectives and that that talent and the need for those diverse voices and perspectives in the room and at the table making the decisions so we have enough women and men and non-binary folks in the room so we see a world that's designed by those people as well. Yeah, 100%. And you also mentioned that a lot of those internships are unpaid, Mm -hmm. which again is another barrier for kids from poor backgrounds and and, uh, that's where the privilege comes in where, you know, rich kids can afford to take unpaid design internships, whereas the people who are from low socioeconomic backgrounds cannot. Would you say that women are better designers than men? Interesting question. One thing I've noticed is a big part of the design process is having empathy. To really be able to understand your client, no matter if you're working for like a super well-known commercial client down to maybe the sort of we're the work we're doing through sisterhood studio which is working with more you know smaller companies and more um socially led um companies is you still need that empathy and women i don't know if it's nature or nurture um yet but are better empaths so far is what i've known so does that mean that they are are better designers i wouldn't say so necessarily i think maybe the process and the perspective they bring is something that is really important and something that absolutely is essential to whatever project that you are working on. I I probably say that. I think, I mean, to, to go to who's a better designer, I think I just come back to saying we need Diversity. more voices mm. in the room. Yeah. And it's, you know, if you, with design, you're sometimes you're not you're not even designing for something that you fully understand or have any lived experience with or in. And if those those voices are not in the room in an authentic way, then the outcomes just it's not going to work. And it, and whoever's less left responsible for not bringing those voices in the room or not having those seats at the table that's when good design is is noticeable whether it's a man or a woman it's it's you notice it when the hard work has been done and the the process is full and it's telling full stories so i think this mentality of like better or worse is something we need to move away from and really start to think who is the better person to have in the room to ensure we're telling the bigger picture, the fuller picture, the more necessary picture. And that's through storytelling, that's through creativity, that's through conversations, that's through like big ideation sessions, that's through making sure that we are not just offering one way to ask questions, we ask questions in ways that are that are careful and empathic and they actually think about, you know, if we're talking about social design, there's so many sensitive topics and so many sensitive subjects. You know, we're working with the girls at the moment and they are very passionate about supporting how to ensure that homeless people can get access to sanitary care. It's something that they're so curious about, but they understand that they don't fully understand the big picture. So at the moment they're going, well, we care and we're passionate about this community, 
but we don't have that lived experience. So how are we going to make sure we don't, you know, yesterday they were like, how do we make sure we ask questions to homeless people that aren't offensive or that we are being really sensitive of their situation? And even like, not just what questions, but how are we asking them? Is this a face-to-face -face conversation? Is this something that we're having with their care worker? Is this something that, you know, these girls are 14 and they're thinking like that. So it doesn't, no age or qualification or empathy cannot, like it, it's in you it's in it's in your body like it's it needs to be flexed it's a muscle that needs to be flexed and developed over time and these girls are doing that through this social design process yeah I'm excited for them to be in the room and how did this conversation come about so this came about through our sisterhood school program so sisterhood school is where all girls gender expanding youth can design their place in the world so this is typically a 15 week to a year long program um, with a specific school where girls and gender expanding youth aged 13 to 17 come together and work on a social impact project that affects an issue that they are particularly passionate about or they are directly affected by themselves so anything from body image to safety to uh, more diversity in bookshelves and storytelling and um, encouraging more girls to play sports. So this conversation, specific conversations come about from a school we're working with in Stratford at the moment and we're with them for one year and they have been going through the design thinking process of coming up with ideas of what changes they'd like to see in the world and they've had millions of ideas and it's all distilled down to the fact that they want to ensure that homeless women have access to sanitary products that are free that is delivered to them in a sustainable way that suits their needs but also actually the conversations we were having yesterday was about ensuring that it wasn't just about sanitary care but they were trying to address a lot of other systemic issues around mental health and support and privacy and access to space and access to uh, private spaces during your period and it, yeah so this is where this com specific conversation comes up and then they will go on to do their primary and secondary research and everything will result in them creating a solution which will then be launched into the world uh, which they will present themselves and then Richita and I work hard to get the funding the backing the support to make their idea happen so should they wish it to happen beyond the beyond the program mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's, I think many people have a very narrow idea of what design is. And I have to say I'm one of them. When you say design, I imagine a website design, an application design, something that's done you know, online and not design in real life, like designing a process of allowing, for example, homeless people to access sanitary products. That's a design, right? Can you talk about the definition of design and, and what, what it includes, involves? Yeah, I mean, you completely hit the nail on the head when you were saying, when I first started, when I first came across design, it was the same. It was that final outcome that you see, right? The website, the app that's built, the product that's been made, the billboard that has been designed, the brochure that's there. But it takes a process to get to that final outcome, as, as everything does. 
and design is so much more rooted when we say design is rooted in that process versus the final outcome. Like the final outcome, of course, we, you know, push girls to make it look good because it has to, you know, we, we're we designers at the end of the day um, as well. We want it to exist just as well as it does with any anything else that is out there. But we have learned that the process is where the actual change and where the journey happens. That is where you uncover and also discover so many things about yourself, about the particular topic or subject or area that you are that you are addressing or working in. And we always say that like, and maybe it's like a larger picture where it's more about creativity, right? So creativity, people equate to talent. They think that creative, like, so many people will be like, I'm not creative because I can't draw. Or I'm not creative because I can't, you know, make a logo. And it's just like, that's not the only part of creativity. That's actually a very small percentage of it. It's a muscle that everyone has. And it's the fact that it just needs to be flexed. And something that we very quickly, you know, learn and realize that the education system right now is, does not have the application that creativity and design has which is you are learning something but you're putting it into action straight away and that's what design also does that's part of the design process it puts that learning into action so we're not sitting there with the girls just you know talking about things that they care about and making post-it notes like the post-it notes definitely happen but it's going beyond that. It's going, okay, how do we take this thing and make it into something tangible that's actually going to affect change? So that's where we really see design. And like for us, like one of the biggest things is making sure that creative education has a place in, and that is just as important as academic education. The skills that you learn through creativity and design are just as transferable and will help you just as much as learning maths, English, and science. 100%. I remember the only time I touched my creativity in school was probably drawing classes, mm. <laughs> like art classes mm. in school. That's literally the only time. There's no no other class that would allow me to be creative, you know, come up with solutions, problem-solving skills, nothing like that. And it's 100% needed. Mm. Everyone needs creativity in their real life, right? In terms of the current education system, you said that you, uh, your program is part of the curriculum in schools. Mm-hmm. It's the official, sort of, one of the classes that students take, right? Do uh, they get graded for it or is it sort of extra? It's extra. Extra. It's extra. So it's, when we say it's part of the curriculum, is that we make sure that it's part within the school hours. We're not, unfortunately, we're not there yet where a school's just like, absolutely love what you do. Let's make it a subject within the timetable. Yeah. The education system is not there yet yeah. in order for that to happen. So when we say we're part of the curriculum, it's like we make sure that it happens within school hours. And a big reason for that is that being able to take time out and do extracurricular activities is a real priv- is a real privilege. And not a lot of girls that who are on our programs can can do that and that's due to barriers like money time a lot of them have a lot of extra caregiving responsibilities as well so and that's where you know equitable why we really want to make sure that we offer equitable opportunities is we're meeting girls where they are 
they're not having to have sisterhood be something up an extra thing that you know that only if they can can they do it but it's a real viable thing that they can do because it's within the school time mm-hmm. how many schools do you work with it really depends sometimes and I think that's I guess that's the beauty of being a startup and kind of like figuring out as you go along so typically we do if we do a 15-week program it's always like about two at the same time so we're doing two 15 mm-hmm. programs at the same time and 15 weeks is about a term so in a year we probably do like four to six programs mm-hmm. um sometimes if we do since the pandemic so since 2020 we've been doing one year one year long programs so if we do a one year long program it obviously takes a lot more of just time to be able to dedicate to that so then we scale back on how many 15 week programs we do so it's really depends on us and you know how much we want to do and it's just the two of you that deliver the program yeah at and, the moment and it's in per- everything is in person it's a hybrid now so with uh, when the pandemic we were thrown into lockdown we were we just wrapped up a program so we literally had wrapped up done our last in person launch event and everyone was going oh gosh this cold that's going around (laughs) and that that was it and then and the launch night happened and then that was the end of Feb a week later we're in lockdown so we had programs lined up and just like so many social enterprises we just saw funding funding streams shut down we saw applications close we saw rejections coming in and emergency funds going up and and everyone's sort of scrambling for support and Rachita and I just sort of had this moment where we were like, we've got all these programs lined up and we've got experience between us of running virtual events prior to COVID. We have to just power through because, you know, we wanted to support schools. We wanted to support teachers during this time. And we had the experience and we had the time and we had the platform and yeah, we had started studio, so we had small reserves to like ensure that we could pay for the program when grant funding was so was so tight. And uh, yeah, we basically rewrote and pivoted our entire program to be a digital program. And now we're opening up again. We've seen the massive benefit of actually some sessions being virtual when when necessary. Obviously, we prefer being in yeah. person. There's just that connection is just so just you can't can't match it but there are some real benefits to working virtually as well so yeah it's a a mixture of in-person and virtual which is working working really well for us at the moment and we don't really see us changing changing that model at the moment whilst we don't have a fixed space Mm -hmm. and also it means that we can just reach more people across the whole country and globally because we can offer more spaces and more applications and yeah, more programs to schools, which is an exciting place to be. Were you thinking about recording classes and then delivering it to students across the country? That's super interesting. We have been approached to do kind of codifying what we do. And that's definitely something that we will always consider. Uh, But because it's so much about personal development and actually not just, it's not just about the individuals, it's about them forging those relationships We're really at that age, both me and Rachita, where we're seeing people that we knew back at school come out the woodwork and really support sisterhood and support what we're doing. And having those early connections, you know, 
will only benefit you in the future if you've worked on this project. It's something that connects you and you'll be talking about in the years to come. You know, the girls that we just worked with designed, wrote, published a book. And that's something that will connect them for life. And we really do see the benefit of just being there with them in person, with a facilitator, taking them through the process, guiding them through that. And yes, you can absolutely codify it and get kind of quick quick classes to improve accessibility, but we're so much about the long-term impact mm -hmm. with being a social enterprise. It's all about demonstrating your ability to make long-term sustainable change. And so that takes long-term sustainable solutions. Yeah. So it's about striking the balance. It's giving people a bit of a flavor of what's to what they can expect on our programs, but it won't ever be the kind of full, full experience that uh, a 15 week mm -hmm. program to a year long program will will leave you with so the impact is relative to how long mm -hmm. we are together you work with girls from 13 to 17 are they all together or do you have different sections or classes for them yeah so they at the moment they're all the same age okay. they're uh, that's typically because of restrictions of the timetable yeah so many schools want to work across age ranges and we yeah. see the massive benefit of that that kind of big sister model yeah. so we are working on it and we have had some really good conversations with teachers that are very very open to trying to make this work but again it's getting it in the curriculum for maybe not quite 15 weeks but a good good amount of time because mm -hmm. there's just so much learning and now we're seeing so we've we're in our fifth year of programming and we're seeing those girls who are on program one come back and want to support girls this who are amazing. on our program now so pay it forward 100 percent. and they're they're the best they're the most equipped to lead it they've they've lived it where we facilitate it and we are you know we've built the program but we've built the program with their voices and their feedback and their ideas of what works and their kind of responses live in session of what's really working yeah. and maybe what's something we can tweak so you know we are hopeful that as we as we grow and expand, there's just familiar faces everywhere mm -hmm. from programs that we've done previously. Mm -hmm. What did you learn in those five years since since you launched? So much, <laughs> so much. Um, <laughs> or has has the program changed, or are you still doing the same thing that you were doing five years ago? Mm -hmm. As in, the framework is the same in terms of you know we start with a what is the thing that you want to address and mm -hmm. you go from that to a solution that mm -hmm. is that is designed but what happens in between that we are constantly iterating and I think that's probably just the design the you know the designers in us where it's just like we want this constant loop of feedback from the girls right because ultimately if a certain aspect of the program is not working for them then why are we continuing to like do it it's yeah. we might as well figure out a better way to tackle this and it's almost kind of like that emulating that so we always tell the girls like you know we are doing this process live with you yes of course we have a general and like basic framework and understanding of like okay roughly this amount of weeks we'll spend on research this amount of weeks we'll spend on prototyping but within that, that can that can change from program to program. So we really, and and I do re recognize that the reason we've been able to do that is because it is the two of us. So it makes it a lot more agile. It makes it a lot easier for mm -hmm. us to be agile mm -hmm. um, as we grow. 
And as we bring on trainers, we know it's going to have to be a little bit more structured. Yeah. I guess with that agility, though, it's the facilitators will be in constant contact. Mm. And when we, as we codify, we're codifying what we do and giving the facilitators the confidence to make a call and problem solve. They are as much designers and creators as the girls are. So, you know, when we have a particular group that's really struggling with the research part, which is such a fundamental part of designing something that kind of that works or that, that flops, you know, we have we have been known to spend like four weeks to eight weeks on the research phase. And then when they've got the idea, the design part is so much easier. So we we are very adamant that if there is one part that's a bit of a sticky part for a particular cohort because everyone is so different, we will work through it and that they will come away knowing so much about how to conduct good, full research. And yeah, but we are going to, we, we know that every process will look slightly different. But as you say, the framework and where they need to get to, how they get there we don't yeah. mind yeah. as long as they get there and there's a solution at the end because that feeling of just creating something that is that that you've made together that addresses an issue you really care about in a wholehearted way is where you see the confidence and you see that yeah. that switch yeah so when it comes to the actual program can you tell me what exactly is happening in those courses so students come and you tell them research a problem that you want to solve And then they have eight weeks to do it or how does it work? Yeah, so we actually pose them a question. So it starts every program and actually the beginning, very beginning of Sisterhood started with a very simple statement. If I could change one thing to make the world better for women and girls, I would. Mm -hmm. And we run that with them many, many times to um, unearth and surface what it is that things that impact them that could be made better that that you know that can make their and not only them but their as a result their communities as well and that is the very first starting point of sisterhood of of the programs and then from there where it goes is determined by the girls so as Rebecca was mentioning that this particular our current group are focusing on you know access to sanitary care but that was not the only thing they had three different directions they were also looking at ending violence against women and girls and they were also looking at equal and fair pay so and there were many many others many other things that came up uh, with that but they all as a group narrowed it down through a series of exercises through research through different creative sprints as well we've done this time that that is what they have decided to focus on and we're about like 15 weeks almost 15 weeks in so we are at a point now where we've done research they have iterated loads of ideas mm -hmm. and we are now at a point where they last week they presented three group they were split in three groups they each presented their mm -hmm. idea and they are now ready to develop just go forward with one mm -hmm. of them so now the next I guess couple of weeks yeah until well not couple of weeks couple of months actually are going to be about prototyping and also really understanding what their particular user in which in this case which is homeless women and girls really really need so what what is the solution what, what are the solutions that they came up with 
so currently they're looking at the fact that a lot of shelters or spaces where homeless people can access, there's not that much quota on hygiene products and sanitary care comes underneath that. Mm -hmm. And the fact that access to any sort of sanitary product is very ad hoc uh, for someone who is homeless and menstruating. So how can we make that something that is such a basic right for those who menstruate to be able to very simply get access to it for free whenever they want, wherever they want, just as any other person can if they weren't homeless? Like, how do we, how do we make that mm-hmm. happen? So, for example, right now they, they're thinking about You know, is it the case of putting vending machines in public spaces? And by public spaces, they don't just mean like public toilets or, you know, in shelters. But they're really thinking about that. Like, what if we like actually got like, let's say we're thinking local at the moment. Let's say in Stratford, the high street that you go down, the cafes and restaurants, which you normally can't go into unless you buy something to use the toilet. Mm -hmm actually is part of this initiative Mm -hmm. and has a vending machine Mm -hmm. in their bathroom which allows homeless women to Mm -hmm. go and access sanitary care so they're thinking so much bigger than just you know it's not just about homeless women being able to get the products but they're actually rethinking about the whole structure and construct of being able to go and use a toilet Mm -hmm. um and you know these barriers that people have to be able to just basic hygiene yeah Yeah. i think one thing with this is it could be misused Mm, yeah if you put a vending machine anywhere Mm. there's a lot of vandals that Mm. could just go in and you know do whatever with it yeah exactly and these are the things this is the exciting stuff yeah this is the stuff that they need to figure out um and this is where you know having those conversations with women who use shelters or are in need of uh, these products they will tell them this is what's happened in the past. You know, this is what hasn't worked. This mm-hmm. is what might work. This is what I need. And that's where like, that's where like all the juicy stuff, that's where the exciting stuff of design mm-hmm. happens where you test it. It doesn't work. Okay. What do we need to do yeah. next? Do you test it? It doesn't work. Okay. What can we do better? So once you have the solution and the girls decide to go with it and, and implement it in real world, uh, do you give them funding? So when they've, come up with their sort of the solution that Rachita just spoke you through. It's not, the funding doesn't happen at that exact point. We look at for the gaps of our expertise. So we bring on experts who specifically have knowledge around the issue, the solution. Mm-hmm. They might be a product designer. They might work at a homeless shelter. They might work for a large sustainable sanitary product company, etc. So we bring on the expertise who work with the girls who stress test their idea exactly how you just like they they're really yeah. they're they're playing you know they, I would enjoy this so much they're questioning <laughs> it so much and and the girls love it they this is where they thrive in it and they they turn into real problem solvers because they the passion has kicked in they've done the blue sky thinking which is always the really interesting part with sisterhood because it's going what do you think you're not just sitting there going okay so we're going to re- learn about this today and this is what you should know and you need to make a point you need to give your example you need to explain it it's going what do you think I honestly we've never seen more terror (laughs) on anyone's faces than when we say like how do you feel about this what do you think about this it's a really unusual question to be asked at school and that 
goes from blue sky thinking, going how I feel, I think we should have this, I, 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 mm-hmm. this is what I think needs to exist, I'm really passionate about this, to this needs to exist because, or this needs to exist because there is evidence mm-hmm. of, and we need to test this to try and see if it works for this solution. So you move from that creativity to design, which is the action-based stuff and evidence-based stuff that we see the unlock in confidence, the unlock in like undeniable belief that this thing needs to exist. Yeah. And then that's where you're starting to get the first prototype. So in, you know, 15 weeks, one year, what you're seeing is, is, is the first iteration you know, this can continue to develop Mm. if it doesn't work or there'll always be learnings. And that's what I love about the design process is that it is constantly iterating. Nothing is ever final. And I really, I personally connect with that because perfectionism is a thing. And to know that you can kind of try again and keep designing and keep iterating Mm -hmm. and you are a working progress, I think that instills so much more confidence for me to put stuff out there in the world and to keep creating because let's see where it gets to in five years time let's see where it gets to in 10 years time and if people are still using it then thank goodness I put it out Mm. in the world and I didn't just hold on to it until it was absolutely perfect it's it's a messy process it's an iterative process it's a work in progress and that's what people are as well just as much as designers people are always a work in progress and they're always constantly developing and iterating and growing and changing and that's exactly how we've built our our programs that's exactly how we run the business that's exactly what we think about leadership with our with a growth mindset and we want to bring girls into that world where they don't have to get things 100 percent perfect and they've got a space where they can kind of fall and fail and thrive at the same time and work on these projects that they they really feel that should they should exist and that's where different perspectives really matter if you put five white boys in a room and you ask them what do you think they would probably answer the same thing whereas if you put you know different genders in one room together i think the solution will be much better than if if you had one group of people together yeah definitely because everyone brings that different lived experience everyone brings those different perspectives and that's what makes anything richer like any project any you know service product whatever that you're creating and makes it so much richer Mm -hmm. like even for these group of girls our next steps over the next few weeks is actually we've been doing the work of reaching out to homeless shelters because it's really important that the girls embed themselves and understand where these women are coming from. Mm -hmm. You mentioned studio a few times. Can you talk about what it is and how it relates to sisterhood? Yeah, so Sisters Studio is our independent design studio where we work um, with clients on a variety of projects, everything from like branding to campaigns uh, to spatial design. And we really there is definitely like an overarching thread of like, you know, using design to make your good intentions, which we all have into good action, Mm -hmm. because that's what design does. It takes an intention that you have and turns it into a good action. And essentially that is what as designers we do at studio. So we've worked with on big campaigns that really want to reach out to young people in an authentic way to working with local authorities and local councils Mm -hmm. who are looking to design initiatives um, and programs that really have the community voice in there 
So really, we love the breadth of it. We love mm-hmm. doing the big commercial stuff. And yeah. we also love working in like the local civic stuff as yeah. well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And Sisterhood Studio is, you, you mentioned about funding school programs. Sisterhood Studios is, is where we really demonstrate to the girls, you know, that it's all good coming up with a solution to their projects. But then how do you get it off the ground? How do you ensure that it's funded? And you are being paid for your time you are being you are working as part of a team and an ecosystem that is supporting the idea fully and sisterhood studio is is our route to sustainability as a Mm -hmm. entire business where you've got sisterhood school which is a community interest company and sisterhood studio which is a limited company and sisterhood studio is where in order to like to have this authentic youth voice in your campaign and your uh, or your project or your your new spatial design you know you're giving back to the young people you're not just sort of going oh thank thanks for answering my questionnaire yeah. it's going okay and we're investing in a program that's in the local area or we are going to bring on x number of your girls for this opportunity that would be of massive benefit mm-hmm. to them so it's just seeing other it's also for our girls that I'll be on the program. So we say we work from with girls from 13 Mm -hmm. to 17. Our huge wish and dream is that we are building up a pipeline of confident, creative change makers and leaders, whatever sector they go in using creativity. And we see them in studio. Mm -hmm. We have a pipeline, but we also have opportunities and work opportunities available for them as part of the studio as they, they go from girlhood to womanhood. So where are the girls now that went through the program five years ago? So we're doing something really exciting, actually. We are with them. So we're actually, we're not doing it at all. They are building an alumni network. So we have, you know, gotten to a space where three years on, we've worked with over 150 girls now. And now as we're growing and we're seeing that actually that 150 that took us three years, our ambition is to reach that in one year, Mm -hmm. in one year and continue to grow that. And we've kept in touch with, all the participants who've been part of our program in a very ad hoc way. But we know that they also have the desire to keep in touch, to be part of more sisterhood opportunities. Yeah. So uh, we're working with an organization called Big Bloom who are working with some of our alumni to actually design what that alumni network is going to look like mm-hmm. and how is it going to function. And we love that the alumni who are taking part in that are from our first ever program. They know right? They are five years on. Some of them are at university. Some of them are doing jobs. They know what they need from us. They know what they want from us. They know what sort of network they want. So let them build it. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. And and what courses did they go on to study at the university? Oh, a variety. Some of them have gone to study law. Mm -hmm. Some are studying English. Some are going to study film. So a real like mixed, mixed bag of what uh, of subjects because going through your course doesn't mean that they have to go and study design right? not or at interior all. design they can study anything and the design process can still apply to exactly area. it's so transferable yeah. and this is you know building upon that iterative process that design offers it offers so many transferable skills and and tra- transferable skills that won't only build confidence in what your in your own personal development but in your ability to present ideas mm-hmm. communicate ideas hold conversations hold space you know uh, gather a group of people and ideate other solutions or 
yeah, presentations. Like there's just, that is where we saw the magic at sister, uh, with Sisterhood whilst we were at Central St. Martins. And we were like, this just shouldn't be for the lucky. This realization we've had at 20 shouldn't just be for the lucky few that's had the opportunity to study at higher education. And we both studied creative programs and projects and courses mm -hmm. from a young, young age. I specifically chose junior schools that had a creative field. And it wasn't until I was 20 did I even, even get a glimmer of social impact design. So it's like, why should this just be in a, like, this should not be behind a closed yeah. door. This should not have, like, there's no gatekeepers yeah. of social impact design. We need to package what we are learning and what we are developing and bring it to girls much much earlier which is all about going to, to the root of where the, the confidence gap lives mm -hmm. where you know we can start to address all of these basic needs that girls talk about in their programs starting to think how can sisterhood help heal those roots how can we build up a pipeline of of, of girls that are confident but also they have projects that are the financial backing that have the the edge the usp the all of these things that we look for in ideas that can go on to change the world yeah it starts at the mm -hmm. root of the, at the mm -hmm. root of the the sunflower mm -hmm. well said <laughs> i also want to spend a few minutes talking about the actual startup process mm -hmm. um so when you decided you were gonna pursue sisterhood what factors did you consider when making the decision? Were you like, I need to have X in savings, I need to mm -hmm. have funding, I need to have a co-founder? And, and how did you decide it was going to be a community interest company? I guess with us, it, our personal journey was starting a business was not something we had planned. It was something that came out as a result of our final project at university. And when we decided to make it into a business, for us, both of us were, you know, freshly out of university. We had, both of us had gone and done internships that paid us. But at, apart from that, we were figuring out what we wanted to do in our career. We were, mm -hmm. you know, we were just starting out. And uh, when we had the opportunity to be like, no, we're going to pursue sisterhood and we're going to make this into a business, we did not have X amount of money and savings in order to be able to do that. We had to work alongside and to be able to do sisterhood. So it's funny because I always think back to the time and uh, so many of like my friends and family used to say like, oh, like, um, oh, it's good. Like you're working part time and doing like this like pro project on the side. And I was like, no, you don't understand. I'm working on part time so that I can so yeah. that I can do that. It's not the other yeah. way around. It's not that like oh yeah, I have a nice like side project and then like yeah. the three days a week that I work is like work. I was like no, I'm working so that I can put those hours in into that into that project. So yeah, we didn't have it and we had to be like very realistic and have that conversation. Like I remember I was just like, let's just go full time. Let's just take that leap because that's what we were around. We were part of an incubator and we were quite, we were one of the youngest people in that incubator. Like What that, incubator? Uh, with the Young Foundation. That's the one. Um, yeah, the Young Foundation, which was part of the Young Academy. Yeah. And it was a six month six incubation. Months, yeah, yeah. And then it kind of ended with a pitch to Bank of America. That's an unusual investor. For investment. Yeah. But we knew before we started, we wanted okay. we wanted grant funding. Uh -huh. um, although Bank of America have a lot, they'd work a lot with, mm -hmm. with young people. So it was just 
early days we were really looking for that first kind of seed seed money mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, we so what gave us the confidence i would say the the we did a we did a launch lecture at our degree show so normally on a degree show you kind of have your work just displayed yeah. and people walk around but we were like let's go big this you'll <laughs> learn this with sister it's like what can we do on top of what we're already doing <laughs> um so we did this launch lecture called practice what we preach and this is where we kind of really set out our research and we asked a huge yeah. amount of women mm-hmm. like where's what's this drop off where's the sisterhood gone and after that launch lecture we applied for seed money and didn't learned about fundraising yeah. and how hard it is <laughs> yes and we had a tweet from the head of college who was like this is one of the best initiatives to come out of central st martin's wow. and i think like that just we already had this undeniable belief that this needed to exist but then mm-hmm. when the outside world started to see the benefit in it and creatives that we really admired and respected started to see the the benefit and like the need for what we were doing so early on when it was still such a seed of an idea when I look back at it we were just going to make it work mm-hmm. and as Rashida said we worked part-time and we worked really hard and we didn't just work part-time in something that was disconnected we Mm. were we consciously worked in the charity sector again such a hard sector to get into because of the 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 disparity of income of salaries in the Mm -hmm. in the charity sector that you have to you have to accept but we knew that's where the learning of designing for social impact and social justice was that's where the learning was so we wanted to integrity is a big core value of us both so we were just like we need to know that we are practicing what we preach. We are learning how to build sisterhood alongside. Mm-hmm. And we did have support and we learned a lot in the two charities. And we worked separately. Mm. We didn't work together then. And mm. we really tried to share that knowledge and have that independence because that was like a stress tester for us as well mm. to be like, we're co-founders. We've signed, a, you know, <laughs> that we are both shareholders in this. And, yeah. you know, that it, that really stood the test of time. That was hard work. We would go from a full day's work and then get the tube to Hackney, do two hours of delivery and then kind of get up for work the next day. And like we, that was all pilot pilot projects and um, those early days are I mean any founder or startup will will feel that that you will go anywhere to just mm. if someone says yes to your pilot you, you will go anywhere to make it happen to get that first bit of proof and impact that it should exist so yeah no amount in savings uh, it was just sheer it was it was really hard mm. it was really really difficult and I think we were consciously trying to ensure that we had our overheads covered in order to make mm. sister happen and that's why it's just taken longer we haven't sister doesn't just built in a year or yeah. the, you know it's not sort of a, tur- a quick turnaround you know, we're going into our sixth year now and as Rachita said we're working and with, still going strong still going strong <laughs> and we're working one school at a time we are you know we are with them for the long term these are conscious decisions so that we are role models for our girls as much as we can be to say like starting your own business is there's no quick fix there's no quick solution there's no kind of hop skip and a jump if there is please tell us <laughs> um, and yeah it was a very conscious decision we made so early on and I think that was main, majorly driven by our shared core values mm. I think you can't possibly express in words how difficult starting a company is People just have to go through it. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to explain. 
because they will never understand how painful, like physically, mentally, on all levels it is. I mean, we've had each other. Yeah. I mean, I have a, like, yeah. I feel a little lump in my yeah. Like, yeah, we've got... We are so lucky that we are co-founders and we are on this journey together. I don't... I, honestly, we say this so many times, we don't know how solo founders do it. Like, we don't know how solo yeah. founders... Like, so much credit and so much respect for those um, solo founders. But we we love being co-founders. We love that we have, it's like two perspectives, like two, you know, two skill sets mm -hmm. that go into it. And, you know, people tell us like, how have you done so much in like, you know, not being full time yeah. and not, you know, we are, we only really went f like, and we're not even 100% full time yet. We're like 95% full time at the moment. Mm -hmm. And they're like, how have you done so much? And that is like, because there's two of us. Like there's really this power in being two of us yeah. and having two skill sets that we can cover a lot of bases. You know, we can we can do a lot more with there being two of us than mm -hmm. I could possibly do if either of us were doing this on our own. So there's definitely there's definitely something in that. What makes a great co-founder relationship? And have you ever had any conflicts? <laughs> How did you resolve them? I was really thinking, I really like this question because I, as Rachita was saying, and be when, honest. <laughs> when people say like how lucky you are to have a, have a co-founder, I really don't, I don't think it's luck at all. I really kind of think like it, you know, Rachita and I, as I've said, we really aim to lead with our core values, which kind of leak, it, it seeps into every aspect of the business. And I won't go into like each of our core values right now, but they're aligned. And if they're not aligned, they're complementing each other. And so, like, when I actually look back at when me and Rachita met, we were at university, we were put in the same tutor group with our tutor who was really leading in social impact design. And she was talking about her observation about how the American ballot card was designed and just how terrible it was and how, uh, <laughs> like, you know, it's led, that's a huge decision-making power and it's designed poorly. And I just remember in that moment, like, I was a little bit obsessed with Rajita. Like, I, there was that bit where I just, I had, I was immediately invested in what she was saying and what she was doing and how she was thinking. And I was like, I want to start working and designing on this together. And that's, that, I didn't know at the time, but that was like a, a core value of ours was, was, was problem solving or, 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 or looking at how we can make things work better. And... Yeah, I think like if I was looking for a co-founder, I would reflect on my own core values first, my principles, my drivers, what's kind of motivating me. And yeah, like do looking for someone where your values match or they do complement, they complement each other really well. And I think they're like a guiding star. So if conflicts do come up, if things are, and they do, tension is good. Like actually getting beneath the skin and getting your teeth into something is is healthy it's so so healthy it's it's it need, we need to do more of it especially when we're making decisions that we're having to make and having those difficult and having having difficult conversations i mean to sit here and give examples you have to remember we are writing programs we're making decisions on safeguarding we're making decisions on the future and finances of the company we're making decisions on how much you know, we're paying staff and, and, and talking of like values and equity and equality. We have to have difficult conversations and we're not always going to see eye to eye 
on everything. I like it when somebody challenges me. So does Rachita. You know, we we really challenge each other. Like we reflect all the time when, you know, oh, I don't really agree with you here. I'm going to have to push back. And you've got to give something space to breathe. Mm. And then inevitably, like, maybe a few days, maybe a few weeks, a few months <laughs> later, you go, thank goodness you push back on that. And, yeah, I think there's no need for things to kind of get to an argument. Mm. If you've got to that level and you're all riled up, then something's broken down early on and maybe it's something your 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 driver or there's something that's coming up to the surface that I don't know about Rachita or Rachita doesn't know mm-hmm. about me, which, you know, it may happen, but we will be ready for it. We will be, we will have our core values. We have our mission. We have our vision. We come back to those. That's our North Star. And yeah, I think like that the, with being a co-founder or being a solo founder, just coming back to that will help with any conflicts you've either got in your own head or conflicts that you're experiencing with your other with your with your co-founder or anyone else in the team. I love disagreements. I think they're much underappreciated. Mm. And I think in our society we're losing the ability to mm. disagree. I think people have the feeling inside that they have to conform and agree and be likable. Mm. But I think disagreements are what pushes you forward and and what creates the best solutions, mm. right? Mm. Um, and we have to convince other people to be able to do that. Yeah. So it, it's great what you're doing. We yeah. do that, that exercise on the program. So the yeah. red hat, green hat, yeah. yellow hat. Yeah. What I like, what I don't like, yeah. and what could be better. Mm. And then from that, you've kind of got this mixing pot of like, actually what you're thinking about it. And then you get the, the breadth, kind of the, the room to discuss mm. it and to disagree and to walk away and go, did not agree with that, but mm. I now see like I see another perspective Mm. I see a fresher side it's not about the disagreement it's how Mm. you have that conversation Mm -hmm. and the space in which you have it and then in a lot of times there's it it gets shut down or it's not the not the right moment or it's kind of a quick but having making sure that we have a Monday morning check-in and that's an hour long Mm -hmm. to have discourse Mm -hmm. but in order and to have like discourse that is in a way ensuring that there's space for it if we don't need it that's cool Mm -hmm. but if we do we've got it there and I'm not going to say it's always happening on a Monday morning (laughs) but there's a space to resolve to work through to fumble we are we we are giving ourselves the space to fumble around and like fall and fail as as much as the girls are we are so on this journey with them and yeah I I think it's something that we all just need the space and time to do it and interesting questions and guidance and good facilitation through difficult, difficult conversations. Do you work on everything together or do you split your roles? Pretty much together. And we split in terms of like maybe a particular thing or project that someone is overseeing. So mm-hmm. we do it that way where like the business stuff, we both we both have eyes on it like we both know what we're doing like the top level stuff like absolutely and then depending on the projects and program it might be that certain weeks I'm take I'm leading on the program while Bex is leading mm-hmm. on the studio stuff and sometimes we'll swap I'm leading on the studio stuff Bex is leading on the program so it really depends on what projects we have coming and and yeah and all of that but the business side we both oversee it all the strategy, all the funding, everything. Mm-hmm. Like we both know exactly what's going on. And I think that's really important. 
I think it's in terms of like because sisterhood the way it is we have these different things going on like the studio and program but the overall the overarching business I do think it's important that both of us like are like aligned with what with what's going on and where we're going with mm -hmm. that can you tell me more about community interest company what it is and why should social impact founders decide to pursue mm -hmm. that So I always use the analogy that a community interest company is think of it as like a limited company and a charity had a child mm -hmm. that would be a community interest company. So what essentially it means is that we can make profit. So we make profit, but the difference is that like, for, for example, a limited company, you'd make profit and that would go to the shareholders, mm -hmm. right? If you like... We can't give it to shareholders. We have to reinvest all of that profit back into the business, uh, which works really well for us because we are, you know, we're living what we're doing. We're investing right back into girls and their growth and their programs. Mm -hmm. And where it differs from charity is that it's more open to different types of grants. It allows us to be able to not just focus on like donations as a way of receiving funding. Charities rely a lot on donations and a lot on grant funding. We can really dabble in different ways in which we build our revenue, which mm -hmm. is which was quite exciting to us because we were like, we don't really want to get stuck being a charity because there are so many regulations right. that charities have have to follow, like so many regulations. And when we were just starting, we were like, we don't want to spend like our time getting bogged down with that, like having to like have accounts audited yeah. all the time and certain regulations and things that you have to meet. That takes up a lot of time for charities. And when we're just, you know, fairly small, like do we want to spend that time like doing that stuff or do we want to spend that time like actually – yeah figuring out our business and and you know investing time in that so that's essentially how a community interest company in a very like simple way works mm -hmm. yeah and Can I, you sorry I guess with sisterhood school so I was with the sisterhood studio and school we knew we wanted to start two businesses at the same time and sisterhood school is essentially a localized version of sisterhood studio mm -hmm. so you have mini pop-up studios happening with sisterhood school that is is a version of sisterhood studio so it's just popping up maybe in stratford or it's popping up in southwark or mm -hmm. it's popping up in bermondsey and that's when we were deciding when we met with lawyers and really dis discussed what would work for us and we i would definitely recommend to to meet with a mm -hmm. pro bono lawyer we worked mm -hmm. with Ho hogan lovells like yeah. early on who provide pro bono support and just chat with them about yeah. what you are doing because it wasn't until we sort of made had that conversation about so You've got Sister Studio, which is a limited company, but you're telling us that communities are communities are interested mm -hmm. in having sort of a version of this that is yeah. creating local social mm -hmm. impact. And with the fact that one of our core things is girl, it's girl led, it's led by the community as well. It just made it made sense to us. It made sense as a as a legal body to to do it in that way. And as Rachita said, we then secondly really understood that we could really diversify our revenue streams too. Can you talk about how you make money and how difficult was it for you to get schools on board to charge them mm -hmm. for the courses? Yeah. It's still difficult. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> we do not have any sort of like magic wand or magic trick. It's still difficult. Like our lead times are very long. We had like two schools who were interested 
just towards the end of 2021, um, had the conversations, everything. We're still waiting on those to be agreed. And that's been, what, three months? Will almost be three months now. They're long lead times. They're really long <laughs> yeah. lead times because we had to understand that we are going against an industry, that education is an industry that is very, very set in its ways. It's a, it's a real system and that system has been there for a very very long time so to try and like you know get into that system as much as we were just like you know why aren't they replying why aren't they doing like why isn't this like going fast enough you have to meet them at their pace unfortunately at the moment but yeah so you know we were just like it's it takes time it takes time to build those relationships with schools and that's where partly where we were just like okay you know let's diversify our programs, which will diversify our income. So as long as, as well as our 15 week program, um, 15 and year long program that we do, we also do design sprints. So these are one to two days, maybe sometimes a week long. And we partner with brands and organizations who are looking to give that insight and that taster to young people into a particular industry or a particular career or a particular skill. So those are like, those are more fast paced that allows us to be able to generate income slightly more than solely relying on 15 week, pro 15 week mm -hmm. to a year long programs. And partnerships is something that we are, we started I think last year to properly look into that you know what value we can add to a brand or organization that works with us and and equally so what value they add to our programs and to the girls that we want to work with so that's something that is new to us and mm. something we are trying to build in as a as an income stream for us because we know that schools also don't always have the budgets to be able to so right now you programs. work with public schools. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think it would be easier to work with private schools? So funnily enough, well, that's what we thought at first as well, right? We were like, well, why don't we also offer it to private schools? Because then we can use that money to subsidize public schools, yeah. right? So that was our initial model. That was our first model that we ever went into it. And when we started reaching out to public schools, they were like, well, we already do this. We have the money because obviously students pay to go to these schools. Mm -hmm. They have larger budgets and a and consequence of that is they have the budget to train their teachers to do these sort of things. So it's a lot of it is internal. Mm -hmm. So they don't look for external organizations or initiatives like us to come on board because they were like, well, I'd rather spend the money on training my teacher who can deliver it and who's already on a salary than paying on top of that, paying mm -hmm. someone else to come and do it. It's not to say we won't ever reach out to private schools. It's, that's not the case at all. But when we were first getting started, we were like, oh, okay, we, you know, and that's fine. You know, private schools should be doing this internally. You, you know, your child, students are paying to go there. Yeah. So that's where we were like, okay, fine. We're going to focus on, on public schools and we're going to focus on, you know, going to areas and schools that really have students who really have barriers to being able to do programs like us and yes that does mean that we will always have to like subsidize or match fund our mm -hmm. programs for them because they just don't have the budgets that private schools do maybe you could go beyond the school and ask the parents to provide mm. the funding a lot the of kids. the parents also aren't on incomes that will allow for that 
So we have to also be really, really mindful of that. Like some girls, yes, not all girls in uh, who come yeah. on our program have yeah. like, you know, are in all of them are yeah. in the same situation, but some of them, their parents won't be able to. Yeah. And that's what makes our programs. So, you, you know, how do you make, how do you make money is because people want to see the design work that's coming out of sisterhood school by the people that's designed, like by the, the breadth of people that yeah. are at the forefront of designing it. And that only happens with equity and access and opportunities. And, you know, how, how do we make money is sisterhood studio is our, mm. is our roadmap and our responsibility as designers to build up those funds. It's just going to take double the amount of time, mm-hmm. double the amount of work because we're both working on the projects and then we also have, you know, we recently, the, the, the book that the girls just wrote, Find Me Among Them, which they wrote uh, in lockdown. And you can buy now, those profits mm-hmm. will get reinvested back mm-hmm. in. So we're seeing people want to buy the products that girls are, are making. And even the girls are like, so my book's going to actually pay for another girl to do yeah. this. Mm-hmm. You're, they're, they're, like, they're like, that's amazing. And then it's like, they're going, so when do we get paid? And we're like, well. <laughs> Sister Studio, Alumni Network, yeah. you know, we, it's, we are trying to think of this ecosystem, it's, it's, it's an ecosystem, it's not just sort of a one-off or ad hoc, it's going, okay, how can we fund X more projects through Sisterhood Shop, how can we fund X more projects through Sisterhood Studio, how can we, the diverse revenue is, is why we are still sat here right now, mm-hmm. if we had just sat with grant funding, we, w- we won't, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be here, mm. um, and yeah, I think that the US, you know, having a very unique position in the market, having a very, which is all girl led, it's with the girls are everything. Uh, they are the heart of the mission. That's what, that's how we, we fund mm. the programs and studio with their ideas and creativity and yeah, access to these opportunities. And we make our money work hard we have to we have no choice yeah Mm. we have no choice like you know if we get if we do a project that's like 10k that every single penny of that 10k is like how can we do the absolute most Mm -hmm. with that 10k and like a lot of like 10k is not a lot it is really not a lot of money yeah and so we've really had to graft and really had to learn how to you know Budget. Budget and make money go as far as we, we can possibly can. But we'd like to be in a position where we don't always have to yeah. do that as well. But on the other hand, I think it gives you the motivation to get things done. If you yeah. had a lot of money, yeah. I would imagine there are organizations who are lazy. Mm. There's a lot of admin costs. They don't get things done. Mm. Whereas you really get things done. Mm. Yeah, we we worked with our coach about kind of making our coach Cheryl Clements like making money as opposed to earning money, and that shift in mindset for us both like um, I think it was two years, yeah, coming up to two years ago now. We needed that shift in mindset. Like we are making money for ourselves. We are making money for our programs. We are we're not just earning it, and it's it's coming from another person's pocket. Mm. We're making it through our creativity, the through talking about design education through delivering Mm. programs that have outcomes that can be sold in shops and that was a yeah we're really on that journey right now of of being kind of financially abundant and and working and working it hard Mm. but I'm glad that learning of working it hard has come first for us Mm. 
Slightly unrelated questions to this, but what do you think about diversity quotas in companies? Okay, for I mean, we we speak about this quite mm. a lot because we, you know, it's in our mission, which is about building up a pipeline of girls who will then eventually go on in their careers and their chosen sectors as confident, capable, intelligent leaders and change makers, whatever field they choose to be in. Building a pipeline needs the time. Change is slow for you to really kind of flex that creative muscle or flex that confidence. You need, it needs to be repeated over years, years and years and years. And when you reach that point where you are, you know, maybe C-suite or a leader or a manager, you know, you have that unfathomable belief that you can do this and you belong, you belong, you have that identity, you are there. And historically that's, that support's just not been there for women, for people of colour, for marginalised groups. So quotas are trying to, I think are trying to just keep up with the times and the speed of change as to which the world moves at. It's a catch-up method, but it's not the long-term solution. And I see space for it, but it's a catch-up method. It's a, it, I'm not, I don't want to say quick fix because it has meant the difference of having women in the room to mm. not having women in the room. Mm. And big decisions have been made with women at the room that will then impact our 14-year-old girls. So I don't want to say it's a quick fix and kind of disregard it. But we think it takes up a lot of space in our heads. And especially as we've not taken a traditional method into either commercial business and, and social, social impact business, we've got a very unusual sort of untrodden route. So I can't claim to know everything about it, but I have a gut instinct and I have an understanding of social impact and how long it takes and how long you need to measure it over a course of, of time that I think there's a there's a better solution than than quotas. But I, I see the room for it, I see the space for it, and I see I do hope that we see decisions made that do positively impact our girls that we're working with right now. Yeah. Well said. You said you mentioned you mentioned you have a mentor. What does he do for you? Why is mentorship important? Interesting. For startup founders? Interesting, you said yeah. he. Um, so <laughs> she's she, a she. It's a she. <laughs> she. Um, yeah, so she is a uh, leadership and business coach, Cheryl Clements. Um, and we approached it, I think, at the time where we were really at this point where we really had to just step into embracing being entrepreneurs and embracing that we're, we are building mm-hmm. a business. I think for a very long time, both of us, kind of saw it as like a design project as designers do even though you know we were doing all these things and we were part of incubators and Cheryl has massively helped us understand and embrace our role as being entrepreneurs and what that looks like to us um and the things that we you know we we really stand up and show up for and it's I cannot recommend having a coach enough like I cannot recommend it enough it's like that point where 
what a coach, what, what I have found for me personally, what a coach has done is when you're in the thick of things, it's so hard to see, often see that like light at the end of the tunnel or like, you know, come back to that bigger picture and have that bird's eye view. Like a coach really supports you to do that. Like a coach really, really supports you in being like how to hold the bigger picture and the day-to-day together at the same time. And yeah, I think it's been such a, and it's for us, it's been really interesting because we've done it together as Mm co-founders. We haven't done it separately, like, you know, had separate coaching. And it's been really, I really recommend co-founders to do coaching together because I have learned so much about the way Rebecca operates and approaches things. And she has also learned the same thing. Mm -hmm. So that in itself has been such a huge learning curve. And finding a coach that has a aura, I think, mm. would be the right way that kind of works for you both, which mm-hmm. is so interesting because sometimes you want that sort of very, very strong motivational voice and sometimes you want that more gentle, leading from the back type of voice. And we were talk- we were reflecting about, about Sharon and we were like, she says what she says things that are so thoughtful or actually, you know, quite, really, di- like, quite direct. Quite, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in just the just just the way that we she gets the best out of us Mm -hmm. and that's so it's so good that that you know her approach and her style works for us both and complements again I think comes back to the core values of where Mm -hmm. we're trying to get to and the mission and vision we found her through someone else we admire Mm. and that's massively helpful but I actually want to kind of caveat this because this support is something that you it's again it's a it's a privilege Yeah. yeah And, you know, Cheryl is extremely supportive of what we do and, and, and always looking for ways to ensure that she's allowing, as we, as we are, so it reflects where we're at as a business, mm-hmm. any costings. So if you're not in a position to, like, have the coaching, which we weren't for many, many mm-hmm. years, incubators and, like, having that mutual exchange. So when you're on an incubator, you are partnered with a coach. Mm-hmm. And that's all. I mean, you're exchanging, instead of money, you're exchanging your time. You're exchanging, mm-hmm. you know, got to think about whether you're happy to give testimonials every year or you want to be on the website or what that yeah. looks like. But we did use coaches through that mm-hmm. in the beginning. And then now we're finding out more about spaces like Soho Fellowship, the Stack World, which are spaces that are really tr- trying to build up yeah. co-founders, creatives, and and give them the tools and expertise and financially financial literacy that they need to thrive. These things didn't exist mm. when we were first starting out. So um, really seek these communities and networks that are building mm. those skills and yeah don't feel like you just need to be I need a, I need a coach yeah. and I need to pay x amount per session look look for the mm-hmm. the people out there that are, are providing mm. these opportunities for either a discounted rate or in exchange for something other than money yeah paid forward yeah. exactly yeah yeah last but not least what do you think are the qualities that are important for being a great leader I'm gonna I think yeah. it, for me I think more and more it actually comes down from my like my like personal values and stuff I think authenticity uh, in this day and age and I, I mean I think always but especially in this day and age people can see through things so easily like so easily like it is so important and you'll connect with people so much more if you're just being yourself so definitely authenticity I think generosity for mm-hmm. me is a big one I think a good leader is generous generous with their time 
with their resources, with other people. Um, I think generous for me, generosity recently is like a really, really big one. I think one of the yeah of of, of good leader. Yeah, well, I mean, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. I, I keep coming back to these core values, but I think it, for me, and this is where I, when you say those things, I'm like, yes, this mm. is what I see in you mm. and that whole thing of being slightly obsessed. It's so true. <laughs> um, it's for me, maybe we, we are kind of yin and yang of each other. It's, I bring like emotional intelligence. I really want to... Like, I kind of read the room with feeling or I read the room with how people are responding. Sometimes that can be to your mm -hmm. detriment. But when you actually turn that into a way to exchange energy in, between people, um, it can be really, really powerful. And, yeah, it's really not the common things you think, like being able to speak at a good pace yeah. and, you know... Being eloquent. Being, yeah. It, it's really not that. You think it is. When you yeah. start, you think, okay, I just need to nail this pitch. It's... Or being charismatic. Yeah. For yeah. me, it's actually yeah. a red flag. Yeah. Yes. Like, when someone is charismatic, like, politician-like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. <laughs> Get I away mean, from me. Look what happened to Andy Newman from WeWork, right? He was described as being charismatic. Looks what, look what charismatic gets you, like... There is a new series coming up about his yeah. life. Yeah. I think it's called We Crash. Yeah. If I'm not yeah. mistaken, starring Jared Leto yeah. and Anne Hathaway. Yeah. Uh, interesting. <laughs> so last, uh, can you tell us where can people find out more about Sisterhood? How can they get involved? So we are we are there on the internet. You can find us through our Instagram, which is at our sisterhood, or you can go onto our website, which is our sisterhood.co.uk. Um, and find us there yeah and subscribe to the newsletter mm -hmm. so we have two newsletters one which is directed at young girls and gender expanding youth with opportunities and work experience and all the things that they want to see and then we have kind of just a general monthly good vibes what's going on at sisterhood how you can get involved um what you can do and yeah social media is definitely the place to find mm -hmm. us right now to be, to be uh expanded yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. You're so inspirational. I hope more girls will follow in your path and speak soon. Thank you thank so you much. So thank much. you for having us. Thank you for listening to this discussion. If you enjoyed it, make sure to follow the podcast to hear about new episodes. You can also find me on Instagram or Twitter under Think with Lucy. Let's highlight the grey area that is often overlooked. Let's show nuance. Let's think.